All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I felt like a school teacher then. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Brading. Um, we're going to be picking up the Acts series. Uh, we've been looking at that um, probably over the last seven or so weeks. Um, so it's my privilege to bring that to you this morning. We reach a point in the story uh, of dramatic change for a man that is introduced in the book of Acts. Uh, he meets Jesus and his whole life is totally turned around uh, in an instant, it would appear. I wonder if you've ever ventured out with a target, an aim, an objective in mind, and you've ended up coming away with something totally different, like this is not what I expected. This hasn't happened to you, you need to go to Audi and aim to maybe buy like some eggs and milk, and what you'll come to check out with is very, very different. Now, like a car exhaust or a parrot cage or something like that. Once I came out with a pair of leather pants, tight leather pants, I don't even know why, but I, you know, so watch out for Audi. Um, I remember as a young child, a 13-year-old boy, I walked into my garage. Uh, it was a mid-bleak winter, rather cold, and uh, found my hamster dead in the garage. And great sorrow filled my spirit at that moment. I began to weep, and I went and found my brother. I was like, Simon, Harry's dead. And um, so he began to cry, and we decided to go outside and have a little ceremony for Harry. And my brother began to sing Amazing Grace, and uh, <laughs> I held Harry like this. And just as I was lowering to put him in his little grave, um, I just felt a bit of movement from Harry, and his eyes just popped open and looked at me. <laughs> he was alive. <laughs> we had like an awkward moment where he knew I was about to put him in the grave before his time. And, uh, but we got over that and great joy filled the place and Harry was alive, but it was not what I expected. And similarly for this man, Saul, he was walking uh, with one idea, with one objective, and suddenly things changed rapidly for him. They changed rapidly for him. A little bit about Saul. He's an incredible influence, by the way, on us as Christians. Uh, he's a man that's written 13 books in the New Testament, probably about half. Uh, he has scribed himself. And... Um, He's a great man to follow. He actually said, follow me as I follow Christ. If you want to uh, imitate someone other than Christ, he would be a good place to start. And he's a great model for leadership and ministry. He was the inspired author of many of these books. And many of our theology today, much of our theology today, comes from him and his understanding of the gospel and its riches, its height and depth and length and width and He's, a, he's an incredible, incredible man with an incredible, incredible story. And it's by no surprise, actually, that um, there, is a, there is a great amount of detail regarding this conversion. It takes a large amount up in the book of Acts. We find in chapter 9, the whole of the conversion story is there. But again, we find in chapter 22 of Acts, the conversion story in his own words is there. And then again, in chapter 26, we find out the conversion story of Paul is there. And... Such was the significance of this conversion. He was by birth a Jew, but by conviction a Pharisee. He had a very strong religious spirit. By citizenship he was a Roman, by education a Greek, and by the grace of God he was a Christian or became a Christian. He became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, teacher, preacher, organizer, leader, thinker, statesman, and fighter and lover all pretty much at the same time. His home was in Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. This was a very distinguished city. Um, 
It was distinguished because it had one of the main universities of its time. There were three big universities, and Tarsus was home to one of them. A little bit like your Harvard or your Cambridge um, or your UTS here. It's one of the big universities of its time. And um, he says this about himself. This is how devout he was. He said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a person of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. And in regards to the law, a Pharisee. I had the ability to keep the law. And um, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. That was the right thing to do. I was zealous for the God that I believed in. And therefore, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. And in keeping with Jewish tradition, every young boy would learn a trade. So not only was he well-educated, but... He was a tradie. I've got to be careful there because I'm saying tradies aren't well educated. I'm one of them. But he was a tradie as well. He was good with his hands. And he was, um, had the ability to weave um, black goat hair together and eventually form a tent. He was a tent maker. That was a huge trade uh, in the city of Tarsus. He was a very, very gifted man. And then also, at the age of about 13, he was sent to Jeru- Jerusalem. And um, he was sent there to learn under one of the famous... Um, Jewish scholars of the time, and uh, his name was Gamaliel, and he studied under him. And then we're not quite sure what happens. We're not sure if he's around in Jerusalem while Jesus was there. Probably not, because there's no reference to that. But we know this, that he does arrive back into Jerusalem. And uh, that is where he starts his journey. But let's look at three verses that introduce him a little bit further. These are the first three verses about this man, Saul. Says this, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why were they laying their coats there? It's because he was condoning the stoning of the first Christian martyr. That's your entry to the Bible. His second verse about him was this. It goes a few verses on, as Saul approved of their killing him. That was just, that's the second verse about Saul. And the third one is this Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. They're the the first three verses about Saul. And there was something this day that happened in Saul that so aggravated him, so put a zeal that he speaks about later in him, that he wanted to persecute, to imprison, and to kill every new believer, this new age religion, Christianity. And um, we read the story of Stephen being stoned, a chapter before. It's amazing, it's an amazing speech that he makes before the Sanhedrin, which was, um, well, it was like the courtroom of its time before the Jewish leaders. And Stephen, knowing that he is surrounded by these incredible gurus of Judaism, he actually begins to talk to them about their ancestors. He doesn't talk to them about Christ, he talks to them about his ancestors. And he speaks about Abraham and how he inherited great promises and how many leaders rose up. He speaks of Moses and how he, again, inherited great promises from God. Yet, what he begins then to say is that your people, your ancestors at that time, they continually failed to see what God was doing. Moses went up the mountain while he was gone. Your people then began to make golden calves and worship them. And he says time and time and time again, your ancestors, he speaks like that to the Sanhedrin in the middle. 
much like Jesus was when he was uh, about to be tried for his own murder. And he's standing there in the middle of that scene and explaining to them, your ancestors, the people in which you put your trust, actually they got it wrong time and time and time again. They failed to see what God was doing. Even to the point where they would kill God's prophets, God would often rise up a prophet to speak to the nation. And they, they often just turned their back on what God was doing. And that's what Stephen says to this group of religious leaders. And at that, they decide to stone him. As he says, like your ancestors, you too are blind to what God is doing right now. And something within Saul was at that moment gripped him that he was then determined to wipe any Christian and every Christian off the face of the earth. And then we pick this up in chapter 9. So the way we'll go about this this morning is that we'll kind of work our way through the passage um, and we'll take a chunk at a time and then just chat about that. It's going to be hard for Jenny this morning. She's on the words. Why don't you give Jenny a round of applause for being on the words this morning? We'll try and hash it together, but if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts 9 um, and we're just going to read through it bit by bit. It says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that, he found, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, meaning Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here we find that he's gone to the high priest and uh, he's, got, he's got a letter, he's got authority that now he can go outside of Jerusalem and exercise um, this authority to grab men and women, sons and daughters, fathers and uh, mothers, and take them from their family and put them into prison. And if they failed to renounce their faith, then they would be put to death. That was under Paul's or Saul's regime at the time. And actually, what was meant for bad at that time actually turned out to be rather a good thing because the Christians began to scatter. But they didn't scatter and stay silent. They scattered and they continued to talk and speak and encourage. And many, many people went to this place called Damascus. This was another large city. It had about 100,000 people there. And many Christians ran there. And they began to chat about Jesus. And so therefore, many people were being won by Christ in this, uh, for Christ in this place, Damascus. And Paul decides that this is going to be the place he needs to go to uh, in order to have most effect and in order to um, take as many people back to Jerusalem as possible to imprison them. Scholars reckon there was about a year between the death or the stoning of Stephen and this point now, the road to Damascus. So a whole year he's been going for it. And we get the sense right now that he's, you know, he's not stopping. <laughs> he's not sort of calming down. He, he's... He's as passionate as he ever has been. In verse 3 it says this, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He knew he was a Lord, but he didn't know which one. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The God of the Bible knows how to make an incredible entrance 
He knows how to make an incredible entrance. The first thing I know is this, that Jesus said, why do you persecute me? He's asking Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, was he persecuting Jesus? And it seemed like he was persecuting people. But Jesus takes direct responsibility for the persecution of any person. And uh, he feels the pain of that persecution. He feels the direct impact of pain caused to his people. In Matthew 25, Jesus said this. For he, was, he was talking about the religious leaders again at this point. He said, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Um, and then the righteous answered, Well, we didn't actually do any of this for you. We, we haven't done anything. They didn't get it. We haven't done anything, any of that for you yet, Jesus. We haven't seen you hungry and fed you. We haven't seen you without clothes and given you clothes. We, that hasn't happened yet. And he says, Truly this, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And so... We know this, that the God of the Bible, he, he sees injustice. He sees persecution. He sees wrongdoing and harm. And it's not like he's outside of that and vacant from that, but he feels it and he's in the midst of it. And we know this, actually, that the amazing truth is that God would do something about it. And the next thing is this whole story shows to me one amazing principle. It says to me that, or it displays to me that, God always takes the first step towards humankind. He always takes the first step towards humankind. Never before is it displayed so readily as in this passage that God would meet this man who was searching really to kill followers of Jesus, but God would suddenly meet him and would take the initiative to speak with him. And that is the principle of Christianity, that God has always, always made the first step towards us. What am I saying? Am I saying you're going to ride to work tomorrow and get knocked off on your bike by God? Um, probably not. It could happen. Um, I think one of the principal ways in which God has made the initiative to this planet, to every person, is through his son, Jesus um, he sent him to the earth and Jesus went willingly and with the job or function to carry the sin of the world on his shoulders. So the debt that you and I owed toward God, Jesus would actually carry that and in form of Roman crucifixion. It says in Isaiah 53, it was the Father's will to crush his son, Jesus. And... Therefore, the sin of the world was laid upon one man, Jesus Christ, and he took your debt and my debt. And this was his public declaration, his pu public initiative to the world to reach down and say, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, I'm the God of redemption and I'll make the first step. And maybe this morning God wants to make that step towards you. Maybe you've never known that. Maybe that's a little bit like Saul of Tarsus. You thought you were heading in the right direction. You thought actually you were doing what God wanted you to do. And God would say this morning, I want to make the initiative. I want to show you my son and what he's really about. Sometimes it could just be a feeling of incredible love 
that you've never known before. Even as we talked or sung about this morning about a good father who knows us. Maybe you've never had that in your life, a significant relationship where you felt truly fulfilled. The truth is you can only find that in God. You can only find that in God. And he would want to come and maybe display that this morning. Maybe it would be just a deep sense that God is just knocking on your door this morning. The second principle that's quite clear to see is this, that no matter who you are or what you've done, you're never too far from the reach of God. Is you're just not. No, no, no matter what you've done, no matter your track record, no matter what you've done, you are never, ever outside the merciful reach of God. I was thinking about other examples of this, and I guess the main one that came to mind was John Newton. He was working around the time of the slave trading, and he became a sailor. He was pushed onto a boat and then actually became the captain of a boat. And uh, they would sail to the western shores of Africa and they would grab men and women, boys and girls, and then they would stack them onto their boat. And they would work on about three foot by three foot by three foot um, per person on a boat. I remember seeing young lads going to Portsmouth in the UK and seeing one of these slave ships and seeing the space that a person was allowed. And they worked on about 15 to 20% um, loss as they travelled to the new world at the time, and they would just throw them overboard if they were sick or if they were dying. Um, they would just throw them over the board. And it was the sailor's prerogative in his biography, Newton says, to rape at will those that were in chains. And it was a grim place. So grim was John um, Newton that he was on a boat uh, and it began to sink steadily and slowly, and a lot of their food went overboard. And the sailors gathered together and they realized actually they needed to eat someone in order to stay alive. And together they decided that John Newton would be the best choice, seeing as God would be least offended by that. If such was the wretchedness in this man's heart and people knew it. And then at that time a chest, the, the um, captain's chest just floated to the surface and in it was a Bible and John Newton began to read the Bible, and like a soul conversion, something changed within him. A, a darkness and a closeness suddenly changed within him, and he began to be soft and realize his own downfall. And then he joined a group of people, and they together saw the abolishment of slavery in the British Empire, and uh, he began to preach about this Jesus that had changed his life. And out of that, he wrote that amazing song, didn't he? Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sounds that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found blind, but now I see. And ironically for Saul, he was blinded by this amazing light that surrounded him from heaven. There was an astronaut that looked out of his window as he was nearing the moon, and he got a glimpse of the sun, and he was blinded momentarily, and describes it as a blinding of light as opposed to a blinding of darkness. Can't see anything. No, it's a blinding of light just shone around him. And this was what it was like for Saul as Jesus meets him. He was blinded by a bright light, yet for the first time he could clearly see. He began to see. 
And then this is his response. He says, first is, who are you, Lord? He didn't know. He thought he knew who God was. Maybe that's you this morning. You're not sure who God is. Maybe he wants to reveal more of himself to you. So we find this actually in Acts 23, another account of the same story. Paul, or Saul, then asks this question. He says, what shall I do, Lord? And that is the response of a changed heart. How can I serve you, Lord? How can I serve you, Lord? What can I do to make amends for what's happened? How can I serve you, Lord? And then let's read on in the story from verse 7. It says this, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by that hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Clearly this man knew who God was, unlike Saul at the time. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. God's normal way of dealing with people and meeting people actually isn't through what happened in a big bright light. He loves to use people to reach people. Maybe he needed to do that to reach Saul at the time. Maybe that was the only way he could get through to him was to <laughs> just land in front of him and speak to him and question him. But actually it's like he reverts back to using people. He wants to use us. He wants to use us as his hands and feet, right? And so the three men actually that were with Saul at the time, his companions, they're the ones that actually had to lead him to Damascus. He couldn't see anything. So we see people straight in. And then we see he stays at a man's house named Judas. Again, the people of God working. He wants, God wants to use people. And again, we see this man enters the scene, Ananias. Quite interestingly enough, he's staying on Straight Street. That's where Judas's house is. If you were to go to Damascus today, it's very much like it was back then. It's a, it's a street that, or street, it's a city that's been designed quite poorly. It's lots of tight um, alleyways, and it's a bit of a debacle, apparently, to, to sort of get anywhere, except for one street that just dissects the whole of Damascus. It's about three miles long. And this is where Saul ends up on Straight Street. This is where God takes you. Uh, he takes you to Straight Street when you meet him. And funnily enough, this is, this is where Saul ends up. He once was lost, but now he is on Straight Street. This is where God wants to take you today, to a street where you can see, you have clear direction. Once you were lost, once you didn't know your right from your left, you had not revelation of what life was about, but Jesus wants to provide that today and take you onto straight street. That is what God is in the business of doing. And then next, we find this. What was Saul doing? He was praying. Who knows what was in his heart at that time? Who knows what he was praying about? Maybe his prayer used to be as a Pharisee. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. Thank you, I'm, oh, imagine being like that. But now his prayer is, thank you, God, that you are not like me. Thank you, you're not like me. Maybe that was in his heart. Maybe that was in his heart. And again, that's, 
that's what happens when you meet Jesus and everything else just falls to one side because there's a relationship that God wants to establish with us and Saul knew that. It wasn't like anyone told him, you, you should pray now. He just prayed. He just wanted to commune with God. And this was to be a life discipline. This was to be a life adventure for Saul to be in relationship with God. And I want to say that's a, the hallmark of a Christian is someone that's in relationship with God. That would probably be the main thing in a way. The, the main objective would be that a relationship is restored. God wants to know you and he wants to do life with you and he's very interested in you and he's very interested in the way that you tick. He's very interested in your passions. He's very interested in your hurt and your pain and your loss. And this is the design that God, the one that knows us better than anyone else, would be on relationship and in relationship with us. And Saul, for the first time, began to see what that was all about. And so he's there praying for three days. And then we read on. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Saul's having a vision of Ananias, and Ananias is having a vision of Saul. God wanted to make sure this one worked out. And um, says this, this is what Ananias says. He kind of rebuts God, which is understandable at this point. He says, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. See, Saul's renowned had made it that far, even prior to him entering the city. They knew this man was coming. What would you do? As a Christian at that point, would you run? Would you flee? Ananias didn't. He was still staying there. But then God says, oh, you're right, Ananias. I forgot. It's a different Saul I was talking about. No, he says this, go, Ananias. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. That is the conversion of Saul. One thing that amazed me there is this guy Ananias, the first thing he says is, Brother Saul, and he puts his arms on him. I wouldn't have done that if I was Ananias. I would have maybe brought him in for a bit of questioning. Oh, ah, Saul, the old buddy, old pal. Welcome to Damascus. It's so good to have you here. I'm hoping you're enjoying the wonderful sights haha, of Damascus. Yeah, It's quite blinding, isn't it? Yeah, as they say. <laughs> we don't get any of that with this man, Ananias. He just embraces him. He says, brother, brother. This man was about to drag him away from his family, maybe with his family, potentially put him in prison and potentially puts him to death. And we realize that he greets with brother. Brother Saul, can you feel the richness in this acknowledgement? Maybe it's an acknowledgement that they share this common grace in Christ. 
They share the commonality of forgiveness of sins. You know, there's no prejudice in the kingdom of God, or there shouldn't be. There's no period of performance. There's no calling off period. There's no probation trial. You're straight in to God's family. Brother Saul. He's different. Look at what stuff he's done. It's like, Brother Saul, welcome. And this is God's heart. And it was so infiltrated in this man, Ananias. He so had God's heart that he was the right man for the job. I wonder where we are today on that. I wonder if we have prejudice or that we can be at arm's length of certain people. We want to be those that have the heart of God. There is no cooling off periods. The Bible says this, that we're all outside of the reach of God. Every single one of us. No one was worthy among us. Not one. Not one of us can boast of being worthy this morning. But there was one that is and could boast. And that's our commonality this morning. And so he has the full conversion package, Saul, we see. The full conversion package. He is then prayed for. He receives sight. Maybe like a cataract film just fell from his eyes. I always saw fish scales. I don't know why that's what I saw as a young child in Sunday school. I don't know what fell from his eyes. Maybe uh, nothing fell from his eyes, but we know this, that he could see. He could certainly see again. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized. This was the full conversion package for Saul. I thought it would be really nice this morning just to respond uh, in singing. Um, why don't we forget the band up, Steve, you want to come and lead? I asked these guys to sing Amazing Grace for us, and I thought it would be a wonderful way just to respond and just to dwell upon the grace that has been shown us. Um, so why don't we stand as a church? This was the full conversion package that Saul had received. It was this, he had an understanding of the gospel. He did. He, he understood the gospel because he spent many years hearing about these Christians that were proclaiming the gospel. So there was an understanding there, but he didn't believe. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you have an understanding like Saul did, but you don't believe. The second thing is this, that God's hand of grace always reaches down. First, he makes the initiative, and he's done that through Christ. In Paul's case, he literally came and jumped into the middle of his situation. Maybe God wants to do that with you today, to remind you of himself, to say, look at my son, look what I've done for you, look at the love that I have for you and for my people. Thirdly, this Saul's response, what was it? What can I do, Lord? A response, it was obedience to God. It was an obedience like what can I do to serve you, Lord? And that's the appropriate response, a, a change in heart. I'm not going to live this way anymore, but an obedience. Say, God, I don't know what this life holds, but I want to be obedient to what you may have for me to do. The fourth thing is this. He enters in an incredible relationship in prayer. A relationship begins with his creator. Fifth thing is this. Brother, welcomed into God's family, not to stay insular, but actually so that we may spread the love of God as we're now sons and heirs of this amazing kingdom. Maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you feel, oh, I've sort of ticked those things, I've given my life to God, but I just don't feel part of a community. 
I don't feel like I'm, I belong anywhere. I don't feel like I'm loved. I feel like people just look over me. God wants you in a family today. Sixth is this, he received the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never received the Holy Spirit. This is important for living a life full of the goodness of God, full of the power of God. If you want to achieve your potential, you, <laughs> you can't do it in yourself. You won't be able to do it. You'll burn out very quickly. We need the Holy Spirit to work within us. And this was imperative. This was an early thing for, for Saul. He needed the Holy Spirit. Seventh, we find this, he got baptized. Baptism is a sign of this is the old way of living. This was me, Saul of Tarsus. I'm now Paul. I'm now a servant of Jesus. And we find this, eight, he embarked on God's mission. And what a mission he had laid out before him. This was the full conversion package. And we're going to have a time of singing, but if any of these things relate to you, we'll have a time of prayer at the end. You're more than welcome to come down. If any of those sort of eight things um, have stood out to you, then maybe you want to come and we can pray for you. We can maybe chat things further through. There might be some other guys that want to say some more as well. But why don't we, why don't we sing?